Hey, if we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Rocky Peak. If you're here for the very first time, I just want to welcome you. Thank you for spending this morning with us. You got a program as you came in. Inside your program, there is a message note sheet. That's a great tool to help you follow along as we go into our time of teaching. So if you'd pull that out, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we're going to get started this morning. Father, as we dig into your words, Lord, I'm just in awe every morning when I get to gather with my family. Father, we're all here because we're united by you. We're about to open your word and our prayer this morning, Jesus, is we want to see you. And I want to be very clear about what I'm praying. I don't want to see what I think you are. I want to see you based on the authority of your word this morning. The big Jesus, the infinite Jesus, the loving Jesus. In fact, the Jesus I can't fully wrap my mind around. That is our king. And so I pray, again, as family, Jesus, that as we, as we see your word, as we're moved by your word, as we're changed by your word, let that change equal that you are bigger in our lives. Let that call to follow you be bigger in our lives because of it. We love you, Father. In your son's name we pray, amen. So one thing, if, if we haven't met and you get to know me, you'll find out very quickly that one of my favorite things in life are movies. I'm a movie guy. A simple pleasure that I love is just watching a good or a bad movie. Sometimes bad movies are a lot of fun, but I love movies. Any movie people out here? Any people? We're kindred spirits. So I have, you know, as many people do, I have my list of my top five or my top ten movies, and often those are always in a state of flux because I'm a movie snob that way. But one of my all-time favorite movies is a film that came out a few years ago called The Dark Knight. Does anybody ever seen The Dark Knight? Now, if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, I'm talking about Batman. This is a movie about Batman. See, I am a huge geek, and I say that term very affectionately and proudly. So superhero movies are right up my alley. See, Christopher Nolan, the director, had rebooted the whole Batman movie thing and did a movie called Batman Begins, and I loved it. See, like many of you, I had been hurt by the Batman movie franchise before, and so... As he did this new take, I was really excited. It was successful. They're going to make a sequel. And in the sequel, what they're going to do is they're going to bring out Batman's most iconic villain, the Joker. And I was really, really excited. See, you don't have to know anything about the Batman lore to have ever heard about the Joker, right? He's one of the most iconic characters ever in our, in our culture. And so the big question was, what actor is going to play him? And so everybody had a theory, everybody had speculation. Wouldn't this person be awesome? Wouldn't this person be incredible? Especially going, if you remember Jack Nicholson's awesome performance in the 89 Batman, you're like, we need somebody of high caliber to do it. And then finally they announced who it was. It was one of those news stories that broke the internet. And it went on that said, hey, this Australian actor named Heath Ledger is going to play the Joker. And I remember I heard that, and my very first reaction was, that is the worst decision ever. <laughs> because I was familiar with some of this actor's stuff, and in the way I would characterize it, what I knew of him as an actor was kind of like teenage romantic comedy fluff. And I'm sitting there going, he has to play this iconic villain, and you went with that guy, the guy that was in the movie A Knight's Tale? This is bad. I started using phrases 
that many of us use when we don't agree with a decision, that is not what I would have done. Let me tell you, I could have done this so much better. There are people getting paid thousands, if not millions of dollars to make these bad decisions, and here I am not getting paid a cent to tell you how to do it right. I was on my soapbox telling anybody that would hear it. In fact, I remember when they released the first picture. It was just a headshot of him in the makeup. And seeing that, I went, this is such a disaster. Are you kidding me? And then they released the first movie trailer where we actually got to see him in the character. And I remember watching the trailer and this weird foreign thought came into my head. Huh, could I be wrong about this? Because it was good. But of course, as somebody that's very prideful and doesn't want to be wrong, no, 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 he'll blow it in the movie. So I went and saw the movie at midnight because I'm a great geek. And it turns out to be, for all the movies I've seen, what Heath Ledger did as an actor is still one of my favorite performances ever. And what happened watching him in that role compared to what I thought is I had to rethink how I saw him. See, I saw him in a box. And in my head, he couldn't, as an, as an actor, ever leave this box. This is all he was capable of doing. And then what he did for me in that performance is he shattered my box. And it caused me to rethink what he was capable of. And when I did that, the result was bigger. Now, I share that because there's a truth in that story that we've been seeing all throughout our journey in the Gospel of Mark. And it's a truth that we see in our lives as Christ followers, no matter how long we've been following Jesus. See, in this journey in the Gospel of Mark, we've often seen Jesus and his followers, Jesus and his disciples, much like us at times, come into conflict with his teachings, come into conflict with what he had to say about himself, about the kingdom, about his plan. And the conflict is over our view of Jesus. See, often we come into conflict with Jesus. In Mark, we've seen his followers come into conflict with Jesus, not because we don't love Jesus, but we have a box of how Jesus is supposed to work, of how Jesus is supposed to be, of what he's supposed to do. And when he steps out of that box, which I don't know if he figured this out yet, but he does that quite often, we come into conflict and oftentimes it's not easy to just go, hey, you are right. You know better than I do. What happens is we start using that language. Jesus, you're wrong in this situation. Let me tell you what you're supposed to do. See, as we've been going through Mark, remember that came up with the disciples often that, well, if you are the Messiah, this is the Messiah we've been waiting for. You need to do it this way. You need to do it the way I have always thought you were going to do it. In fact, last week we saw that in Peter's rebuke when Jesus goes, get behind me, Satan, because what was Peter doing? Telling Jesus how he should do his job. And I don't give the disciples that much of a hard time because I do that in my own life. See, we have these paradigms, we have these boxes that we like to cram an infinite, all-powerful God into where we limit what he can do. And what we see over and over again in scriptures is Jesus shattering our box. Because when we have a small view of Jesus, we have a very small view of what it means to follow Jesus. But when we have a big view of our king, then we realize that this call to follow is very big indeed. And so today we see once again in our scripture 
Jesus is going to be challenging his followers, rethink how you see me. Not based on your opinions or anything else, but rethink how you see me based on my own words. There in your note sheet, I put in a quote from Dallas Willard. I always put in quotes from Dallas Willard because he's my favorite, one of my favorite authors and thinkers. He says, my hope is to gain a fresh hearing or understanding for Jesus, especially among those who believe they already understand him. So any significant change can only come by breaking the stranglehold of the ideas and concepts that automatically shunt aside Jesus. See, to shunt something aside is to take something or someone and to put it in a place of less prominence. And our box does that to Jesus. And so today, through the scripture, once again, we have an opportunity to let God blow up that paradigm. If you're new with us this morning, again, I'm glad you're here. I want to take a few moments and just explain, just to bring you up to speed on the series we've been in for a little while now. We're in a series that we call Jesus the Call to Follow. Since about the beginning of the year, we've been looking at the life and teachings of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. Now, the author Mark was a key leader in the early movement of Jesus, the early church. Mark was a close personal friend of the Apostle Peter, one of the original 12 that walked with Jesus. And so what we have in Mark's gospel is an account. See, he is writing Peter's firsthand account, Peter's eyewitness of Jesus' life and teachings. Mike put it last week, he's writing Peter's memoirs, if you will. And so this is the, we just started this last week, this is the second part of a three-part series, of a a three-series total. And uh, in the first series, what we did, we called it Jesus the King, and that took us about through halfway of the book of Mark, took us to about chapter 8, and that entire first series was dealing with this very fundamental question, who is Jesus? Everybody had theories. In fact, in this day and age, everybody still has theories. People said, well, Jesus was this. Well, Jesus was that. Even the disciples and the followers, well, aren't you this? Aren't you supposed to be that? And what we saw through the first series was that Jesus was not simply a good teacher, was that Jesus was not simply a prophet, but that Jesus was the one and only promised Messiah, the Savior that broke into our world, broke into our time and space in a big, big way, who has come to save his people who has come to establish God's kingdom. Jesus is the Savior that has come and has changed everything. And all of the first series, all of the beginning of Mark, leads to this turning point in chapter 8, where Jesus asks his disciples, the men that have been walking with him, a life-defining question, who do you say I am? In fact, if you think about this for us in this day and age, that question defines our life. That question defines our eternity. Who do you say Jesus is? And we see Peter in a flash of spiritual insight goes, you are the Christ. Not a last name, but a title. You you are the Christ. You are the one that has come. So now in our second series, now that they've established, well, he is the Christ, he is the king, the question on everybody's mind is, what kind of king is he then? Because they're still wrestling with their paradigm. So Jesus is the Christ, but in my head, the Christ is supposed to do this. So, but he just told us he's going to die. That's not what I expected. So they're wrestling with what kind of king is he going to be, and what does it mean to follow the king in light of that? 
And that's what we're going to be looking at. See, Mike kicked it off last week, and we see very clearly that Jesus is a countercultural king. See, that means Jesus is not safe. It means Jesus is going to ask his followers to do things that don't always make sense. It means that his plan is bigger than ours. And if he's a countercultural king, then the call to follow is a countercultural call. And so to understand that, we need to rethink how we view Jesus. We need to shatter that paradigm in the box. And the way to do that is to base our image of Jesus on his own words. And so there on your note sheet, you've got a section titled, The Story of Mountaintop Transformation. If you've got a Bible or an app, go ahead and open it up or turn it on to Mark chapter 9. So we're going to be starting at verse 1. Now, I've got to set up a little bit of context for our story, but to do that well, I need to go ahead and read verse 1 with you. 9.1 says, And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. So let's stop right there. If you were with us last week, Jesus gave a very challenging message, did he not? In last week's message, Jesus is telling, as he's rebuking Peter for saying, no, you got to do this my way. Jesus is sending a message to all of his disciples saying, following me is countercultural. Following me, there's no middle ground. There's only all or nothing because he uses words such as pick up your cross and be prepared to give me your literal life, everything to follow Jesus. Remember, he who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. And so last week was a very challenging message, and intentionally we didn't hit the last verse. And so this first verse in Mark chapter 9 is the last part of that section. And what Jesus is telling his disciples, because if you remember, 10 of them were killed for the name of Jesus later on in life. And he's telling them something very interesting. Hey, some of you here right now are not going to die until you see the kingdom come with power. The quick, the quick way to view that is Jesus is talking about his resurrection. There is no greater show of kingdom power than Jesus' ultimate victory over sin and death, his resurrection. But this is setting up our event because what's going to happen is three disciples, his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, are going to be given a glimpse, are going to be given a preview of future attractions and see the glory of the resurrected Jesus before we get to that point. So starting at verse 2, what's going to happen is Jesus takes these three Peter, James, and John, and he takes them to a mountaintop. A mountaintop is often the traditional place in Scripture for special revelation. And has he got something to show them? It is something that is going to absolutely blow their minds. But before we get there, you need to understand the state of mind that these disciples are in. See, Mark does something really, really interesting, as we'll see as he sets up this account. He says six days later. Now, Mark is often considered the book of action because Mark moves fast. Mark usually transitions with words such as immediately or and then. He doesn't often give us a chronological note, but in this event, he does. And the reason he does that is he's being very intentional about tying in the fact that Peter's confession of Christ, Peter's rebuke, and this mountaintop experience we're going to see, this all needs to be seen under the same tent. 
This all needs to be seen under the same breath. In fact, that's a great big picture principle for Scripture in general, is that these events in Jesus' life are not one-offs. They're all telling you the same story. And so here they are going in, because they're walking in going, okay, so Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, we're going to topple Rome. Jesus just yelled at Peter, because Peter said, no, don't die, because Jesus said he's going to die. That's weird. Why would a king die? I don't understand this. So that's their state of mind going into this. Let's read together. Starting at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Okay, so we need to, we need to paint the picture of what's going on here. See, the term that the scripture uses, Jesus was transfigured before them. See, we need to understand the bigness of this situation. Jesus did not have a simple costume change on the mountaintop. He didn't go to Home Depot and buy some floodlights and put on a cool show. See, the word that we've translated transfigured is a Greek word, metamorpho. We get metamorphosis from that word. Jesus had a complete and utter transformation. What the inner circle of the disciples are seeing is they are given a glimpse at the risen Jesus. This is not in this moment the suffering servant. This is the Son of God. This is an exclamation point on the fact that he is the Christ. Now, Mark and Peter are doing their, as Peter's accounting the story to Mark, as Mark is writing, they're trying to use human terms to explain. They go, well, he was white. It was something that no matter how hard you bleach, the way to see that is he was in a white of that was not of this world. This was definitely supernatural. And to top it all off, for these Jewish men whose jaw are on the ground, figureheads of their faith appear with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. I don't know how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. They didn't have Instagram back then. But here they are. They see Jesus. I'm willing to bet it was spiritual revelation, and they just knew. And if I was sitting there, I don't know what I would be thinking. But here they are, and the fact that Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus was a very big deal. Moses represented the law the law that God had given us to start the process of restoring his people's broken relationship to him. Elijah represented the prophets, the people that through God's spirit, that God gave them words to speak about the future, to speak about things that were to come, the kingdom. See, they represented the Old Testament, and here they were with Jesus, and their place was to send the message that everything the law stood for, everything the prophet stood for, everything the Old Testament stood for is fulfilled in Jesus. He's the one we've been talking about. He's the one we've been waiting for. See, Mike has used this analogy, and I really like it. It's easy to think sometimes that Jesus is like a brand new show for the fall season. See, the reality, if you look at old, if you look at shows that have gone on for a long time, like Lost or 24 or something, Jesus isn't a brand new show. He's about season six or seven. What we mean by that is from the very beginning, the entirety of Scripture is pointing to Jesus. 
is setting the way from Jesus. Jesus did not happen away from what came before him in Scripture. He is the fulfillment of it. This is crazy, is it not? This is crazy for us to read this now in 2013, and let's put ourselves in the position of one of those three guys that's there. I don't know what is going through their heads right now, but Peter, lovable Peter, does what he's known for doing best. He opens his mouth. (laughs) Peter's going to open his mouth. He's going to say something. And what I love about it is you see Jesus isn't necessarily being rude. They just don't acknowledge it. (laughs) Because as Peter opens his mouth, as he said something just dumb and we'll get into it, They don't acknowledge it because then something even bigger happens when God the Father appears. So let's see. Verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so terrified. That editorial comment makes me laugh. Because that's like Peter talking to Mark. It's like, dude, I, we were terrible. I didn't know what to say. So let me put it this way to paraphrase a comedian that's out there. What Peter should have said was nothing. What he said was dumb. And here's why it is. For a long time, I had always taken Peter's statement in this event to mean, hey, let's build three tents. In fact, there are certain translations that that's how they translate the word. Let's build three tents. And that always confused me because simply put, I would sit there and go, is he like offering to go camping with them? Like they're going to sit or imagine that s'more party as they're sitting around like doing that. I don't understand what he's doing, but that's not what Peter's asking at all. See, the word we've translated from, translated to mean shelters is a Greek word called skene, which is a translation of the Hebrew word that means tabernacle. So an appropriate way to put this is, let us build three tabernacles. Tabernacle means dwelling. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the portable dwelling place for the glory of God. It contained the holy of holies. So what Peter is doing, as many of us do, is he's seeing this incredible bigness of God, and he's trying to interpret this through his human paradigm, that box we've been talking about. He's trying to take what he's seeing, and he's trying to cram it into his box, because what Peter is really saying is, ah, see, Jesus, I told you so. Now, we do that, don't we? We try to catch Jesus in that trap because we think we're smarter than he is. I told you so. And what's happening here is, Jesus, you are the Christ. You said you needed to die to fulfill whatever you're here to fulfill. You just got awesome. I told you you don't need to die. So let's build these tabernacles. Let's build these houses of worship. Let's keep the mountaintop experience going. And you know what? Let's, this doesn't have to end. This is going to be great. And then you're glowing. Let's take you to Rome. Do this in front of Caesar. Topple him over. And that whole you're going to die thing, let's just forget about that, shall we? He's making a few mistakes here. He's trying to do it his way, not God's way. Because our way, his way, our way, is always for short-term game. Toppling Rome over so they can live, they can live, they can have nice, a nice community to live in the here and now is nothing compared to eternal security. And he's also missing another key point. Three tabernacles. He put Moses and Elijah on the same level of Jesus. And he's missing the picture. 
Jesus is doing this, sh- Jesus is showing them his godhood because they don't need the tabernacle. They don't need the temple. He is the tabernacle. He is the temple. See, unlike other people in Scripture, Jesus was not reflecting the glory of God. He was the source of it. He was emanating God's glory. Let's keep reading. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except for Jesus. You need to understand about this cloud. This is not a vapor cloud. This is not a natural phenomenon. This was the presence of the Father. This was the cloud that led the Israelites out of captivity and exodus. This was God the Father once again affirming his son, affirming what Jesus has said and done to this point, and affirming what Jesus will say and do. And he lays out the foundation of our relationship with Jesus in two areas. One, he says, this is my son whom I love. Our relationship with Jesus is built on the foundation of love. The love between the father and his son overflow into the love between Jesus and his creation. But with this visual stimulation that's going on, it's fascinating to me in the second part that he doesn't go, this is my son, look at him, look at the majesty, look at the awesome. He lays the foundation of what it means to follow Jesus. Here is my son, listen to him. Listen to him, his words, what he's teaching, what he's saying to your specific life, listen to him. And then the glimpse was over. I don't know if it was in an instant. I don't know if it was like one of those cool movie transitions where they kind of turn around and it's all back to normal. But the lights had stopped. Moses and Elijah was gone. The cloud was gone. But what remained? Jesus. I need to steal a word from Mike and do a sidebar here. I don't have the time to fully get into this issue, but we need to look at these key points about that picture. See, Moses and Elijah can represent in our lives key leaders that have impacted us. See, a gift that God gives us, our leaders, our mentors, our brothers and sisters in our lives impact us to be there. But the reality is we are humans, and that means we will at some point go. Moses and Elijah are gone, and what's left? Jesus. If you look at it in the context of Rocky Peak, Mike, myself, Dave, Patrick, whatever leaders in different ministries, we have an opportunity to be a part of this church for this time, for this place, but this church is bigger than us. Because if we come and go, Jesus will always be here. And the second thing is this. They had this mountaintop experience, and many of you in your walk with Jesus have had a mountaintop experience, a time where Jesus was so clear a time where you just felt that emotion, a time where you felt the presence of the Father. And what happens like it did with them? The mountaintop experience ends. See, we're given them as a gift, as a reminder, but the mistake that we make sometimes is we chase the experiences rather than chasing Jesus. We chase human leaders rather than chasing Jesus. Now, again, I could go on and on on that, but I just wanted to hit that point in a sidebar, so... Sidebar over. Let's keep going. So what's going to happen next is 
they're going to go down the mountain. Remember, six days connected this event to Peter's confession and uh, the rebuke? They've had a crazy week. And now they're trying to process what's happening. And so once again, being human beings, and again, hear my heart, I'm not giving, I don't want to come down too hard on the, on the disciples because if I was there, I would probably be doing the same thing because I'm human too. They're trying to process this and we see that they're still trying to cram Jesus within their box and their paradigms because what we're going to see is they're trying to process what just went on. They're trying to process what Jesus means and they have Jesus there and the one person they're not asking about it is Jesus. And then they're going to ask what they think is kind of a safe theological question, but they're confused. And it has to do with Elijah. And what we're going to see is, remember, when the father said, this is my son, listen to him, what the father was doing was challenging us to rethink Jesus. And now they're going to ask a question that they're confused about. And Jesus' response, as his response often is, is a call to rethink. So let's see. At verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. See, they didn't know what they had seen. They they couldn't explain this well. The telephone game would happen if they tried to tell people what happened right now. Jesus wasn't hiding who he was, but he didn't want the message to be distorted either. So he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Again, especially after seeing what they had just witnessed, seeing the Godhood of Jesus, the fact that the Christ had to suffer and die was something they just could not grasp. It was beyond them. It was still, this is not how I would do it. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it it written that the Son of Man must suffer and must be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about. So they're asking this question because there was a prophecy that Elijah would come back. In fact, it's not in your note sheets, but we're throwing it up on the screens. They're talking about a prophecy in Malachi, in Malachi 4 or 5, that's talking about the coming of the Messianic age, that's talking about Elijah coming. And what was understood at that point, the paradigm in the box was, according to that prophecy, Elijah, the bodily Elijah himself, is going to come. The bigger picture of how Jesus rocked that paradigm was, it was never meant to it was never meant to say that Elijah himself would come, but it was meant that somebody would come in the spirit of Elijah. What is meant by that is a prophet did not prophesy on their own power. A prophet prophesies powered by God's spirit. And so we're told at the beginning of Luke, as we see the prophecies of the coming Messiah, we're told that the forerunner, that the herald would be one in the spirit of Elijah. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, Elijah has already come because Matthew connects this more explicitly. He was John the Baptist. 
Because when it says to restore all things, what needs to be restored? Our relationship with God. How do we restore that? By repenting. So someone would come in the spirit of Elijah, God's spirit, and preach repentance. And we saw that. That was John. He was saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Now Jesus says, but we've done with him what we wish, meaning John was beheaded. The herald's execution was foreshadowing the Christ's death. And he's answering the theological question, but again, he blew their paradigms. So that's our scripture. There's a lot of awesome going on in there. But the big core truth is rethink. We need to rethink how we see the Jesus. And so there in your note sheet, there's a section titled, The Call to Follow, Rethinking Jesus. And if I were to only pull one truth from this section of scripture, it would be this, and this is your fill-in. To follow Jesus, we need to rethink who he is. To follow Jesus, we need to rethink who he is. Now, I need to build a little bit of context for the statement. This is a true statement, but if, seen, if it's seen uh, outside of the correct parameters, this is a very dangerous statement. And here's what I mean. In our culture, much like in their culture, there is always, from all different walks of life, a lot of rethinking of Jesus going on, is there not? It seems like there's always a new documentary or a new book or a new article, or a new study, or whatever that has, that, has mar- that has cornered the market on the real Jesus. This is what Jesus really was. Not the Jesus that they teach in church, but this is what Jesus really was. See, Jesus had a hidden family. See, Jesus was just a man. You know what? Jesus wasn't even that. He didn't even exist. You know what? Jesus was an alien that was brought down here to subvert our thinking, and we could go on and on and on. Even within areas, of, within areas of people that call themselves the church, there is rethinking of Jesus, where people will go, well, you know what? Jesus never would have taught about sin or judgment. He was all about love and kumbaya and let's hug. Hey, you know what? Jesus himself said, I wasn't the way, I'm just a way. Get in the ballpark. Just get kind of close and we're going to be all good. So hear me very, very clearly. Jesus is calling us to rethink who he is, but he is not calling us to rethink who he is based on our own opinions, emotions, experiences, desires, hopes, hurts, whatever. It has nothing to do with us. We are being called to rethink who Jesus is based solely on the authority of Scripture. Who is Jesus based on his own words? Let's go to the source. See, the question I'm asking is this. Is your image of Jesus, is how you view Jesus based on what he had to say about himself, based on his word Or is it a mix of something else? Is your image of Jesus based on your upbringing? Is your image of Jesus based on certain leaders that have been in your life? Is your image of Jesus based on uh, certain cultural ideas? Is your image of Jesus based on certain hurts or tragedies that have happened in life? See, the way we view Jesus 
directly impacts how we view what it means to follow Jesus. Now, those things I mentioned, upbringing, leaders, experiences, those don't necessarily have to be a bad thing to our image of Jesus. Those can be great tools, but like we've said in other contexts, the tools can't supersede Jesus. They can't be the rule. And a lot of it, what makes those great tools, if they are, is if they're grounded in Scripture. See, we're given the words of God, and that is where the deceptiveness of sin creeps in. Remember I mentioned the telephone game? The devil is good at playing the telephone game. The devil is good at lying to us. And he doesn't start off with these giant blatant lies. He's very subtle. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden and go, hey, did God really say that? Are you sure? Maybe, maybe you just missed a word or two. And so what does he start to do? He starts to move you just one step away from gospel Jesus. And then he'll start doing something else and he'll just move you one more step away from gospel. You're not super far, but you're maybe it's a little bit off, and you keep going, and you keep going, and you keep going, and before you know it, your image of Jesus, my image of Jesus, has nothing to do with the Jesus that's presented in the Bible. And that's what he, the enemy is trying to do. See, what he's trying to do subtly is have us all fall into a trap where we as limited human beings begin to dictate who Jesus is and what he's here to do based on what I think is right, my own understanding. There in your note sheet, there's a quote from a book called Putting Jesus in His Place that I found in a Swindoll book. And I like how he, he talks about this trap. He says, frankly, it's hard to escape our feeling that our culture has taken Jesus' question of who do you say that I am and changed it to, who do you want me to be? We tend to call the shots when it comes to Jesus. Now, there's a lot of different ways that we do this, but I want to talk about one key one in our Western culture world, and that's this. A key example I found in my own life and in the lives of many people is we can often take Jesus the Christ and shrink him down and turn him into the Jesus of suburbia. Let me tell you what I mean by this. It's become a common view of Jesus in our Western culture that Jesus came and died for our sins solely so that we could live out the American dream. Now, I'm stereotyping the American dream a little bit, but this is a prevailing view. 2.5 kids, boy, girl, and a dog. Career, success, white picket fence. Go to church on Sundays. You know, again, I'm, I'm generalizing here, but the Jesus in this view is safe. The Jesus in this view is comfortable. He doesn't rock the boat. He's very sanitary. The Jesus in this view is very removed from life when we're not in this building. We see this in cultural images of Jesus we're, well, I mean, we're not near Christmas, but if you walk into a Target or Costco, you think Christmas was coming around the corner. So if you take a cultural view of Jesus, take a nativity set, and if you look at like a nativity that's presenting how Jesus was born, you would think if you didn't know anything about Jesus based on most of our nativity sets, that he was born in like a five-star manger. That this is like the Hilton of that. I don't know if you've ever been around animals or a major. There's poop, all right? There, this is where our king was born. But in our images of Jesus, oh, no, no, it's sanitary, but he's dressed to the nines. Mary doesn't look like she just gave birth. She looks happy and worked off all the baby weight, ready to go. Or 
there's the picture of Jesus, I like to say, it's called the sheep Jesus. You got this like really like thin, malnourished Jesus, like got a sash, and he's holding a sheep, and he's smiling, he's kind of blonde looking at you. And those become our images of Jesus where we sit there and go, oh man, that's, re- that's really safe. That's, that's really comfortable, I like that. And then in John's gospel, it says that when Jesus cleared out the temple because they were distorting a relationship with God, these tax collectors, he made a whip. Does that image of Jesus, this safe American dream image, fit with the Jesus that made a weapon? No, it doesn't. Oh, see, we all fall into this temptation. See, I'm not teaching this because I'm over this. See, when I was a younger man, when I was a younger believer, this idea of being safe, this idea of being comfortable, it didn't matter that much to me. Yeah, Jesus, you want me to live in a van down by the river and preach the gospel and just eat top ramen? I can do that. That would be great. Do you know how this became such a temptation in my life, how it's become such a struggle is when I had a family. I was sharing with my life group this week, man, this Jesus of suburbia, this safe, this comfortable, this nothing rocks the boat. When I was a younger man that was willing to do riskier things, that's one thing. But now I've got a wife, I've got a child, I've got another one on this way. I just want them to be safe and comfortable. I don't want anything to rock this boat. Man, this is real. But it shrinks Jesus. And maybe I'll get temporary happiness. But I remember something Joel Enyar had said years ago that stuck with me. Do I want my family to be happy or do I want them to experience God's glory? And a lot of times they do coincide, but not all the time. But God's glory is eternal. See, in Scripture we see that Jesus wasn't concerned with being comfortable because being comfortable is short-term. Now understand something, Jesus isn't a jerk. He's not walking around like kicking your sandcastle over going, I don't want you to be comfortable. Jesus was concerned with the eternal, the future. Jesus came to establish his kingdom that meant my creation that I love. I'm here to bring them back to life. I'm here to turn them from sin. And we all know that the process of turning from sin is uncomfortable. It's messy. It's a journey. But it is worth it because what did Mike say last week? Jesus came to give us life. Sometimes living isn't comfortable, but I would rather live the way I was created to be than be dead with short-term comfortability. Jesus came to give us life. The call is radical, it's countercultural, it's future focused. And the thing where Jesus shatters this Jesus of suburbia box is he will call us to do things that are countercultural. He may call us to even do things that seem countercultural in a Christian culture. And let me give you an example. See, the call to follow is countercultural because we have a countercultural te- king. So look at these examples. The American dream is safe, stability, good part of town. There are going to be people that Jesus is going to put on the hearts of a couple to move to an area of town, to move to an area of the city that's not the best, that's not considered well, but because somebody needs to be a light there, because somebody needs to befriend the least of these, because somebody has an opportunity to share Jesus There's going to be parents that have the means to send their kids to really, really good schools that the Lord is going to start putting this uncomfortable thought on them that I want your kids to be missionaries at our local schools. I want your kids to go and be a light because no one else is and your kids are going to be exposed to things that are going to be dangerous, things that are going to be out there, but I'm with you. I'm trusting you. This is countercultural. There are going to be some of you that it's going to be with the finances. The culture is saying, charge it, buy the boat, buy three, why not? 
And there's going to be some of you that your call to be countercultural is the Lord's going to put on your heart and simply say, I want you to get out of debt because you would be surprised how getting out of debt gets everybody's attention, how countercultural that is. There's going to be some of you that your call to be countercultural is to, is to do the adult equivalent of being the high school student trying to do the right decision in the cafeteria, meaning befriending that person at work nobody else can stand whether it's trying to befriend that boss you're convinced of the devil, whether it's not gossiping about that person that everybody else does, whether it's maybe even simply sharing a meal. Again, it's loving the least of these, and while everybody else is doing this, that's a countercultural call. There's going to be all of you in dating, our dating relationships where the Lord is going to go, my countercultural call to you is to have purity in your sexual relationship. And it's going to be changing, sending that message that the message our culture has about sex is that God doesn't like it. And the reality is God invented it. He wants it to work. He knows how it works best, and he put it in the parameter of marriage because he wants us to have the best sex life possible. But that call to purity is countercultural. Do you see? Following Jesus is countercultural because he is a countercultural God, and it's not always safe. It's not always comfortable, but it is worth it because we have a lot of messed up models in our lives. But when we start modeling ourselves after our King, we start becoming coming like our king. When we start modeling ourselves after Jesus, we start experiencing what he meant in John 10.10 where he says, I will give you life and to the full. We start becoming more of what we were created to be and that is living, breathing children of God. And it's countercultural. And it's countercultural, but it's what changes us. So how do we do this? When your note sheet, there's a section titled The Call to Follow, Experiencing the True Jesus. I need to experience the true Jesus. I need to rethink Jesus based on his own words. And so that fill-in is scripture is our source. Rethinking Jesus means we need to rethink how we view Scripture. Because just like how we've shrunk Jesus and put him in a box, we've taken his word, shrunk it, and put it on the shelf. See, the struggle, and this is an honest struggle, this is a real struggle, this is a struggle I have as well is that it can be easy to see Scripture as simply a book without pictures. It's a book. We can see Scripture as, well, I know it's important, and I know I should be doing it. And so we turn this book into a chore. And we sit there like, hey, I'm down with going to church, I'm down with worship, I'm down with preaching, but reading the Bible, ah. And we need to rethink our view of Scripture if we're going to use it as the authority for how we rethink Jesus. See, it doesn't go one or the other. This is God's word. See, it starts by how does Scripture define itself? Well, in John's gospel at the very beginning, he says that Jesus was the word in flesh. This is Jesus' very own word. In Hebrews, we're told that Scripture is living and active. In 2 Timothy, we're told that Scripture is God-breathed. 
Do you see that this is a very big, big view of Scripture? In fact, it's even why I titled uh, this section Experiencing Jesus. See, reclaiming our, a proper view of Jesus means that we need to reclaim a big view of Scripture. And what I mean by that is Scripture is not simply reading about Jesus. Being in Scripture is an experience. It is experiencing Jesus. I always look at it with this picture being in Scripture is sitting at a Starbucks with my ultimate relationship. I'm getting to know Him. I'm experiencing Him. hearing what He has to say in my life. See, there are things in this world that no matter how well are described to you, they will never come close to you experiencing it for yourselves. And Scripture is definitely a big part of it. See, we have these great tools where people will come and they can help us understand Scripture. They can help show us things. We can put it on plaques in our houses, but we are missing out if we are not experiencing Scripture for ourselves. Let me give you a goofy analogy on how to think about this. If you've heard me teach before, you know that a core value of mine is food. All right? I talk a lot about food. It's one of my favorite hobbies. And so I, I'm a donut guy. I love donuts more than anything in the world, and it's been my life goal to find the perfect donut, and I did it. I did it last year. Down in Azusa, there's a little shack of a place called the Donut Man, and they have what they call the strawberry donut. It's the two most perfectly glazed donuts in the world. On the inside are whole strawberries that they've candied. It's a sandwich, people. It's a donut sandwich that they give to you, and I swear when they give it to you, you're the hallelujah chorus playing. This is the perfect donut. Now, as I'm describing it to this to you, many of you are sitting there going, man, that sounds great. I could show pictures of you, but nothing is ever going to replace the idea of actually tasting it. Smells, taste, experience. Experience is a great teacher. When it comes to Scripture, we have many tools to help us, but nothing replaces the experience of you in Scripture. Because Scripture is a street shooter. Scripture will always paint a very big picture of Jesus. Scripture does not hold back on who He is. And what I love about Scripture is we will always discover something. We will always learn, no matter how long we've been walking with God. Because in Scripture, it's always rattling our paradigms. In your note sheet, I put in a few verses from Colossians 1. He is the image, this is Jesus they're talking about, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. This is not a Jesus contained in a box. Do we see this description in scripture? This is a big Jesus. And so the call to follow is expanding that picture, and Scripture is our source for that. But let's talk a little bit of reality here. Making Scripture a regular part of our lives can be an intimidating task. Scripture can seem intimidating. There's many good questions. Where do I start? How do I do this? What's going to be right for me? And the reality is I don't have the time, unfortunately, to dig into it because it's a bigger question. The best way for you to be in Scripture is really going to depend on how God wired you. The way that's best for you to be in Scripture is probably going to be different than the people sitting around you. 
than certain family members, and that's okay. We don't have a boring God. He wired us all very, very differently. There's some of you in here that your best way to digest Scripture is big, big chunks, two or three chapters at a time. There's some of you that your best way is maybe two or three verses where you're just meditating, you're just focusing on it. There's some of you that your best way is sitting still and quiet. There's some of you that that would drive you crazy. Your best way is walking around the mall with Scripture or sitting at a Starbucks where there's a lot of hubbub. There's some of you that really Reading won't be best, so listening, having it come through audio is going to be the best thing for you. And we could keep going on and on and on. And the truth of the matter is, the best way for you to digest Scripture can also change over time. The way I spent time in Scripture was different a few years ago than it is now. Those are natural evolutions in our walk with God. I don't have the time to dig into this, but I can give you one tool if you're interested in it. We have these essential courses here at Rocky Peak where we talk about these are areas that we think it's vital, essential to know how to walk well, to grow in Christ. And one of them is this question, how do we pursue God based on our wiring? If you go to rockypeak.org, if you go to our website, you can take this course online at any time. You can sign up there. It's under the Path tab. You'll see Essentials. This is an excellent course because Mike's heart, he shares this the first night, the first night over the video instruction, is your relationship with God is just that, yours. And so you need to discover what works best for you in that. But let's not minimize the fact that the goal is for all of us. Imagine what this church would be like if we all made it a priority for Scripture to be our source and our Jesus got big. That would destroy these valleys. Now, before I wrap up, I want to, on this point, because I talk about it's intimidating, I want to talk specifically to long-term believers. If you've been walking with Jesus for a length of time. Because I want to call something to light here. The enemy has a specific wall, a specific, uh, a specific weapon he uses against you when it comes to this. And that's guilt. And let me tell you what I mean by that. This has been very true in my life, and I'm sure this has been true at your, your time as well, many of you as well. You come to Christ, and you're just like, have that fire. And you can't put Scripture down. You're reading Scripture like cover to cover every night. You're reading everything, you get your hands on Scripture, you're going, you're going, you're going. And then you look at a length of time later, and that's not the case anymore. You look back, and maybe now, weeks months, years before I open scripture. And what happens, I know in my life, what happens, I look back and I just feel guilt. I sit there and go, why don't I have that fire? Why don't I have that passion? Like, I feel like I should do, I, I want to go back to the good old days. I want to I go back to what it was. And that guilt turn, leads us into a trap where we start chasing the past. Nowhere does God ever call us to go backwards. We're always called to move forward. Long-term believers, let me hopefully bring a light of encouragement to you because I've needed to hear this in my life. What happened at the beginning was awesome to give you a foundation. Now, your circumstances, you're a different person. Your circumstances are different. Your life stage is different. Trying to cram your relationship with God and what it was however long ago is just going to lead to frustration and depression and it's going to build walls where we don't want to do this anymore. Jesus did not die for us to live in guilt. 
Jesus died to free us and go, today's a new day. Let's discover our new way of spending time with the Lord together. Does having to relearn a new way make you any less of a Christian? Not at all. Do not let the enemy lie to you about that way. My encouragement to you, looking back on the past can produce guilt. Look forward and live in joy. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out. And as we close this time of worship, I want to encourage you, this is an opportunity for us as we sing these songs to just be able to pray and ask the Lord, Lord, make your image of us. Show us your bigness. Lord, I want to rethink you based on your words. Not my opinion, not my life or anything else. I want to rethink you based on you. At this time, too, the ushers are going to come forward and we're going to receive our uh, gifts and offerings for the week. If you would do me a favor, we would stand together and we'll pray. Father God, as you call us to rethink, I'm just grateful that you call, don't leave us alone to figure it out on our own. I'm grateful that when you say rethink, you've given us how to think about you. You've given us your son, his very presence. You've given us your words. You've given us these pictures. And I'm not always going to be able to wrap my mind around that bigness or that fullness, but I think that I can keep learning that there's always going to be something that is going to make you bigger. Jesus, I pray right now for whatever box we've put you in, we're giving you full permission. Shatter it. Yes, it might be messy. Yes, it might be uncomfortable. Yes, it may be hard and it may be a journey. But man, this is going to pay the biggest dividends we would ever experience in our lives. We want you, just you. In your son's name, amen. You know, it's, uh, it's always amazing to me how when we listen to the words of God, it just opens our eyes to see more of his infinite bigness. When I was prepping for this message, I was really excited because I found this quote from a favorite book of mine that I wanted to use. And then I found out Mike used it back in July. And I was like, oh, but he's not here, so I'm going to use it anyways. <laughs> Mike and I both share a love for the Chronicles of Narnia. And you might recognize the quote from Prince Caspian. Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger. This is because you're older, little one, Aslan answered. Not because you are bigger, asked Lucy. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. See, our God doesn't change. But it's amazing how when we grow, we find him bigger. If you'd like to pray with somebody before you leave this place today, over on that side of the auditorium, there's a prayer corner. Some amazing men and women that would love to pray with you this morning. Really hope you can join us next week. Mike's going to be back. I'm continuing our journey in Mark. What we're going to see next week is we're really going to look at what is the nature of faith. What does it mean to have faith as a father brings his demonized son to Jesus because the disciples couldn't heal him? And for many of us, when we think of faith, we think of many different things. And how do we balance faith and doubt? So this father is going to ask a question that so many of us have asked in our lives. Jesus, I do believe in you, but help me with my unbelief. Really hope you can join us. We'll see you then.